X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, March the 3rd. Today, back in the day, March 3rd, 1820, the United States passed the Missouri Compromise. Back then, the movement to abolish slavery was heating up. Tensions between the North and South were rising. The Missouri Compromise was a law that attempted to defuse those tensions. It admitted Missouri into the Union as a slave state and admitted Maine as a free state. It also outlawed slavery north of the 3036 parallel, including a big portion of land from the Louisiana Purchase. The Compromise remained in effect for 30 years until the Supreme Court struck it down in Dred Scott. But before you think that was good news, remember Dred Scott. The Supreme Court in that case said, in effect, Congress had no power to prevent slavery. And after that, it was just four years until the start of the Civil War. Today, back in the day, March 3rd, 1849, Joseph Lane took charge of the Oregon Territory. Joseph Lane is a fraught figure in Oregon history. Mexican-American War vet, he became Oregon's very first governor. He served for just about a year before stepping down to become the congressional delegate for Oregon, later a senator. One of the first acts as governor was to prosecute five Cayuse natives accused of killing 11 white missionaries near Walla Walla. Lane was also controversial for support of slavery and the Confederacy. This support effectively ended his political career in Oregon. Still, both his son and grandson had fruitful careers in national politics, making Joseph Lane the patriarch of one of Oregon's most prominent family. Lane County bears his name. Today, we have an interview on food insecurity with Kyle Camberg, Executive Director of the Sunshine Division. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Representative Kurt Schrader was one of two Democratic representatives who voted against the $1.9 trillion stimulus package. In an interview with KGW, Schrader explained his reasons for voting no. He cited the minimum wage increase that was put in the bill despite the Senate parliamentarian declaring it unconstitutional. He also said he opposes the minimum wage increase because he believes it'll hurt small business owners. He stated he felt like the package was pushed through without allowing for debate and change. Back in December, Schrader also voted against a $2,000 stimulus check for lower-income Americans. And after the January 6th insurrection, he initially indicated he would vote against impeachment. He changed that view. Representative Schrader's district stretches to parts of the Portland metro area and Salem, along with parts of rural Clackamas County and the Coast Range. The wealthy scion of a pharmaceutical executive, Schrader's been very well funded in his campaigns, won his last primary with a big margin. If you want to hear Schrader say it, hear his words. Voice of the elected representatives, not heard in this package at all. It was a take it or leave it approach. And $1.9 trillion, every other COVID package that we've done, not only has been bipartisan, but has gone through an extensive vetting process. And now your daily dose of data. On Tuesday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 269 new cases of COVID-19. There were 13 new deaths, bringing the total number of deaths to 2,225. 149 Oregonians are hospitalized with the disease, which is 17 more than yesterday. The first case of the P1 variant was detected in Oregon yesterday. A Douglas County resident has tested positive for the new variant of the virus that was originally detected in Brazil. The individual recently returned from a work trip to Brazil and is self-isolating in accordance with the OHA and CDC guidelines. Say goodbye to the cranes, and I don't mean birds. Portland's construction boom seems to be winding down. Since 2016, Portland has ranked in the top five cities for crane sightings. You've seen them driving, biking, walking around. That seems to be coming to an end as the number of cranes dropped this year from 30 to 27. 
And apparently that is just the beginning of a decline in new construction that has some economists worried about the pandemic rebound here. Projects at the airport, Intel, and OHSU are all wrapping up right now. The new building permits are down by 27% from last year. It might be nice for the skyline, but not so good for the economy as large construction projects bring a big influx of dollars to the city. And know that it takes years to plan big projects, so we know the pending slowdown doesn't seem to be related to the pandemic or last summer's protests. There are a few big projects coming on the horizon. Portland Public Schools will continue to remodel its high schools. The most recent to be revamped, Leodinus V. McDaniel High School, formerly known as Madison. Talks are still continuing around the I-5 expansion around the Rose Quarter, the new I-5 bridge over the Columbia. And you, could be rest, and you can be rest assured that despite climate concerns and despite racial justice concerns, the big builders will be pushing hard for those projects. Frontline workers lobby to move ahead in line to be vaccinated. Groups gathered on Monday to lobby Governor Kate Brown to allow frontline grocery store workers to get vaccinated sooner than the May 1st timeline she rolled out last week. The argument is that grocery store workers have borne the brunt of the pandemic, continuing to stock shelves, man registers, and assist customers as the case numbers have risen for the last year. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention has prioritized grocery workers and its guidelines for vaccine rollout, but Governor Brown made the decision to put teachers and school employees first. Dan Clay is the head of the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, Local 555. The union represents about 25,000 workers in Oregon. Clay had this to say about the rollout. Quote, Kate Brown's decision to ignore the CDC is a travesty, and it puts all Oregonians at risk. He pointed out that by the governor's timeline, a 45-year-old stock market day trader who works from home but has a higher body mass index will get a vaccination before grocery store workers who make contact with many more people. In a statement to the Lund Report, Brown's office insisted that they, quote, appreciate and value grocery store workers. They have put many safety measures in place to protect them. These include distancing, masks, and sanitation measures. Those who testified on Monday spoke of fear and stress in the workplace as customers often disregard mask mandates. All this comes as Oregon is slated to receive 34,000 doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine this week, with more shipments promised soon afterwards. The Oregon Department of Public Safety Standards and Training is getting a new director. Jerry Granderson is a retired FBI agent, soon be taken over the post on March 22nd. Granderson will be in charge of the agency that trains and certifies police, parole, probation, and corrections officers. Also licenses and certifies liquor control regulatory specialists, emergency dispatchers, criminal justice instructors, private security providers, private investigators, and polygraph examiners in the state. Basically, if you want to do public safety kind of stuff, you go through DPSST. And lest we forget, it also runs a basic police academy. Granderson's worked for the FBI for 23 years, working in narcotics, domestic terrorism, and organized crime. He was an instructor at the FBI Academy. According to his LinkedIn profile, he also has provided civil rights and leadership courses to local police departments. Granderson accepted the new appointment, saying this, and I am quoting, It is with a humble and gracious heart that I thank Governor Brown for providing me this opportunity to serve the people of Oregon. I look forward to applying my skills in leading the training and professional development of our current and next generation of public safety professionals. Be clear, one of the more important things DPSST is going to do will be implement current and new review standards with regards to police use of deadly force. Granderson will replace Interim Director Les Hallman, who will return to his position with Tualatin Valley Fire and Rescue. The Oregon GOP is embracing a far-right agenda. 
The Oregon Republican Party met on February 21st to embrace their agenda for 2021 and to consolidate their message. That message seems to be in favor of Trumpism and extremist groups as they move away from moderate stances on issues. The party unseated party chair Bill Courier and replaced him with Senator Dallas Hurd, who is known to be aligned with extremist groups. The state party chairman has no role in the legislative process and limited influence in the party, but Hurd's election signals a kind of doubling down on the toxic rhetoric that frothed ahead on January 6th. Just five years ago, Hurd was criticized by fellow Republicans for meeting with the militants who occupied the Mallor Wildlife Refuge. And just last December, he was one of the lawmakers encouraging protesters to enter the Oregon Capitol building and wreak havoc. Which is exactly what happened when Representative Mark Neerman opened a locked door to let in a mob of angry protesters who broke windows and smashed doors. The Oregon party is following a broader national trend, one we saw on full display this weekend at the CPAC conference. The ranks of Republican voters in Oregon is dropping, which may be reason the party is moving towards extremism. A decade ago, Republicans controlled the Oregon House. Now they have to stage walkouts, which prevent lawmakers from having a quorum in order to have their voices heard. Former Tualatin Mayor Lou Ogden told the Portland Tribune that he doesn't think the divisions in his party are any more extreme than those in the Democratic Party. Ogden said, quote, Do you think Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' army and Bezos' billions are on the same side? But the change in the party has caused some more moderate Republicans to take a pause. Former gubernatorial candidate Newt Bueller went so far as to change his party affiliation to the independent after the Oregon GOP voted to call the January 6th insurrection a false flag. Bueller told KGW that he doesn't, quote, even know what a Republican means anymore. And finally, some good news. Oregon could become the second state to allow human composting. House Bill 2574 would open the door for more creative ways to put our loved ones to rest. The bill is sponsored by Representatives Pam Marsh and Brian L. Clems and would add natural organic reduction as an alternative to cremation or traditional burial. Natural organic reduction is an accelerated decomposition process that turns human remains into compost in a matter of weeks. Close to 100 people spoke on behalf of the bill at a hearing on Monday. Most cited environmental reasons for their desire to be composted. Cremation uses more energy than composting, and traditional barrier involves harsh chemicals and takes up land. If it passes, the bill would take effect July 1st, 2022. Washington is currently the only state that allows human composting. And that's today's, today's Quick, six quick local, six rundown. local Rundown. X-Ray. Now we will hear from Kyle Camberg, Executive Director of the Sunshine Division. Kyle spoke with host Belinda Carroll about the record levels of food insecurity in Oregon. Here are Kyle and Belinda. Here to talk about Oregon's record levels of food insecurity is Kyle Camberg, Executive Director for the nonprofit Sunshine Division. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. Uh, <laughs> but we're uh, unfortunately a lot, a lot busier 
than I would hope we would be right now. Oh, no, for sure. Uh, 2020 has been a busy year, uh, to say the least, for organizations uh, like yours. Um, Can you explain a little bit about what Sunshine Division does for families facing food insecurity? Yeah, we are an emergency uh, food and clothing relief provider here in the Portland metro area. Really, our our primary functions are pretty straightforward. We have uh, uh, an old warehouse facility not far from the Moda Center, um, just up Interstate Avenue. And uh, we have a small sort of retail facility at about 124th and Southeast Stark Street, so not far from David Douglas High School. And those are food pantry and food uh, sort of uh, or clothing pickup distribution sites that are open uh, 52 weeks a year that any person can come to uh, to access. Now, of course, with the pandemic, we've had to have some changes. Um, how we distribute food slightly different. We used to have sort of an inside pantry shopping model, but because of COVID, mm. uh, it's much more of a come to the curb, and we're we are uh, you know pushing food out of chute so that it's socially distanced. And approximately a thousand people are coming to those two sites a week, which is more than double than we've ever seen before. Um, and then additionally, last April we launched a home delivery program. There's you know there's tens of thousands of uh, citizens here in the Portland metro area that are that are they're homebound that have um, health concerns that um, perhaps don't have transportation or can't get to us and we launched that program in April and we've home delivered to over 50,000 households since then and that's a, that's a home food box delivery and then you know we have a sort of a, a myriad of other programs some are seasonal we've We've done a holiday food distribution program uh, around around the Christmas holiday since 1923. So there's a number of other programs we do that, are, that might be one particular day day of the year or one particular um, sort of outreach or program. But really, the food pantries and the home delivery are operating you know five six days a week year round. Yeah, and you've served approximately double the amount of people that you did in 2019. Well, actually more than that, because the home delivery program didn't exist. Mm. And one of the other layers of what we do, which is, you know, I could talk on and on. It's a little, little, little harder to explain, but it's essentially we share bulk food. And sometimes that's pallets of food. Sometimes that's emergency boxes. Uh, you know, sometimes it's clothing. Um, we also essentially share resources at, at no cost to a myriad of organizations around the Portland area as well. And that has basically quadrupled so when, when we add together what we do to essentially distribute well, for lack of a better term bulk food to other schools churches social service organizations first responders um, uh, EMTs there's a whole variety of organizations that we support at different times um, and then the number of households and you know families and individuals that are walking up to our two facilities in the home delivery yeah that all together and we've actually helped nine times as many households in the past 11 months as compared to the the year before wow. and uh you know startingly startingly the the year before was our busiest year we'd ever had so um it's 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 staggering the need and the numbers that we're seeing right now uh, it's unlike anything i've seen in the past decade wow why do you feel like food insecurity has become such a problem in oregon you know it's 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 complex but at the same time i think it's also very obvious to a lot of us there's been just such a series of, as I call it, sort of gut punches to so many different demographics in our society over the past year. Obviously, COVID, we, we all talk about and see the impacts of daily. Um, what you don't hear about as much that I hear from a lot of the families we help is just the, the impact of school at home. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a father with a school-aged child, and I see the impacts of that. That's wreaking havoc on a lot of families, particularly low-income families, particularly single-parent families. 
um, you know, having to make choices of do I work or do I, you know, do I put my seven-year-old through Zoom class during the day? That's a really challenging thing. And, it, and there's no right answer. I just know that it, it creates a massive hardship for, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, you mix in wildfires, unlike anything we've ever seen, or at mm-hmm. least in my lifetime that we've seen in Oregon. You mix in ice and snowstorms that leave people without power for days on end. Um, you mix in, you know, unemployment that's obviously directly tied to COVID. That's then, and then just um, all of the industries that I'm, I'm sure you've talked about. I mean, how many people do we all know in Portland that work in the restaurant or the oh, events yeah. or the performing arts industries? And those are very vibrant. You know, Oregon's a very tourism and events and food-based uh, economy. And, you know, as a person that grew up on the Oregon coast, I know how hard it's been in my small town town on the coast with, you know, hotels and tours and just how things have been so disrupted. So, you know, maybe people weren't disrupted for the entire past 11 months, but it's hard to find, you know, groups of people that that didn't have some disruption. And that disruption is really difficult when you know how many people live paycheck to paycheck. And so it's all of those things. And it's a and, you know, it's perhaps maybe not a response you know, to help, you know, help the citizens from the federal government that's been as strong as a, as a lot of us would have liked. And so a lot of organizations like ours are, we're stepping in where we can, you know, it truly is emergency response. If, if you're deciding between paying your light bill and perhaps, you know, feeding your, you know, your, your child, that truly is an emergency. And there's, there's tens of thousands, um, you know, of Oregonians that are, that are in that, in you know, in that situation. I, I just saw, an Oregon State University report that said they think food security is up around 25%. But in the same breath, they also said this is an estimate right now in the midst of a pandemic, and it's actually probably, you know, much higher. And if you think about that, just to, you know, your your listener base, you know, Portland metro area is almost 2.5 million people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're talking about over 500,000 people in the Portland metro area alone, and, you know, likely double that in the state that are accessing food pantries and emergency food relief. And whether that's from places like Sunshine Division or local churches, um, it's, it's, it's real and it's extremely serious right now. And it's not going, that the, the thing I really wanted to share today is it's not going to magically end this summer as people get vaccinated because it's going to take a lot of time for people to economically sort of dig out and get, and get back to whatever their new normal is. It doesn't just magically go away as soon as we distribute vaccines. This is going to be a very real much like the financial crisis in 08, 09, it's going to be a very real problem for quite some time. No, I agree with that. Um, have resources increased proportionally to the demand? You know, um, we, we've been fortunate. People have been very generous. We're 100% locally supported by donors, you know, whether that's individuals that send us a month, monthly check of $10 or local um, foundations or corporations, you know, we don't receive federal funding or, or state or city or anything like that. So we go as far as our local donors allow, and they have really stretched and been generous because I think people do realize what a crisis it is. Um, and so we're, I'm, I'm, we're very fortunate. I also know it's been very difficult for a lot of nonprofits um, right now, particularly those that, again, um, lean towards performing arts and things of that nature where they have you know, I know we're not alone. We nearly had to cancel every special event we had. And so if, you're, if your entire revenue model is based on, you know, the theaters, the theater or the arts, that, that's got to be extremely difficult for those organizations right now. So it's, it's a challenging landscape, but, um, you know, hunger has been very topical, and I appreciate you letting us talk about it because it's, it's a very, very real serious issue right now. 
No, I I completely understand. I actually work with the homeless community, um, so I completely know what you're talking about. Um, how did Sunshine Division adapt to the pandemic and the rise in demand for your services? You know, it was not unlike uh, you know a lot of businesses that sort of have a retail component. We had to, we had to sit down and and really evaluate how can we do this and do this in a in a safe safe manner for our very you know we have a very small employee base. Um, one thing that's been difficult is we also rely like a lot of nonprofits on a huge uh, you know huge contingency of volunteers that help us deliver our mission. You know, literally deliver our our mission. Uh, on a daily basis and so we had to sideline our volunteers and it was really how can we streamline this down so it's the fewest amount of people distributing food in a safe way both uh, for our staff but also extremely important that we're doing it a safe way for the communities we serve and so what we modified really was instead of having people come inside to a very small tight you know confined i i say you know pantry you know almost like shopping in a bodega or a mini mart a, a, you know pretty small confined space we just decided that was not appropriate or safe at this point and so we've we've gone to a much more emergency food box model we put no restriction on how often people can come to our facilities so if it's you know once a week there's no formal check-in, so it's very no questions asked, in and out very quick, no stigma, no paperwork to fill out. And I think that's also part of the reason the numbers have shot up so much is people know that they can come to us and it's not going to be a, an unsafe or an unkind experience where they're, they're in need of help. In fact, it's going to be rather quick in and out and you're going to get your food and you're not going to have to feel feel like you're putting yourself in jeopardy potentially in terms of COVID. And so... That was the biggest adjustment. Um, you know, I'd be lying if I said it was easy. It's, you know, just like a lot of businesses, it was you know, flipping a switch overnight. And how, how are you going to do everything you do? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've got a pretty amazing team and they've they've responded. So I'm, I'm, I'm extremely proud of them. And then the other part was was launching this home delivery. And, and, you know, I'm also extremely proud of that. We started that as a we basically got funding to create that out of thin air. And we thought, oh, we'll do this. We'll do this for at least for ten weeks. And and if in ten weeks we can find more funding, we'll continue to keep <laughs> it going. Because, not surprisingly, home delivering food is a lot more logistically challenging and ex- yeah. and expensive than having a food pantry. And that program didn't exist. And well, here we are. Um, I think we're at about eleven months. Yeah. It's, uh, as I look at my calendar, it's the second of March, and we oh, launched yeah. it, I believe, on on April second. So. We're 11 months in, and we've been able to basically secure the funding through that through the summer. Um, and so I'm extremely proud of that because that's such a huge, uh, such a huge way to respond because so many people are, you know, caretakers. We hear that so often. You know, we hear people that are, uh, you know, approximately my age, and they may maybe you know in their 40s, and maybe they're not as personally concerned about COVID, but they take care of mom or dad, or they have a child mm-hmm. or a spouse that's that's medically fragile. And I hear that all the time and people say, how, you know, can I sign up? Am I eligible? And the answer is yes, of course you're eligible. There's, there's literally no eligibility other than do you live in Portland or Gresham? Cause we can only deliver so far. Uh-huh. And so we're hearing that from so many people that are, you know, that are in this position where they want to keep their, you know, their loved ones safe. Um, and they're terrified about how they're going to do that. And just now I feel like there's sort of this light at the end of the tunnel that people are seeing with the vaccines and things like that. And so, but that doesn't, that doesn't take away the sort of the economic impact of the, you know, I, I, I'll probably never forget. I actually got a phone call 
um, the day after President's Day from a mom with two small children. She said, I, I can't get out in an ice storm. I can't get out of my, my apartment. Can I get food brought to my house? Um, you know, we haven't been able to leave the house for what was probably going on four or five days at that point. Mm-hmm. I said, of course. In fact, I'm going to make sure it gets to you today. I'm not going to physically get it, but I made sure our team got to them right away. And, you know, that's that's kind of the power of this. There's so many different types of people and demographics of people that are, whether it's, you know, senior citizens that are homebound or, you know, a young mom with kids like this in this case, or, you know, veterans or, you know, it's, it's, it's all demographics. And I really think that's why this is so, so serious and so desperately needs to be addressed right now. It's not one small, tiny pocket of society or one, one particular group. It's, you can literally, you know, you can talk about any, demographic of society and there's probably a large a large percentage of that group that is that is hurting right now and so it is it is across the board board mm. um, and like i said unlike anything i've ever seen this is i've been with sunshine division about nine and a half years and the need right now is is um there's, there's not words yeah. there's not words to, to describe it yeah. you know, we we hear the word unprecedented a lot these days and that is that's actually an understatement for what i'm saying Oh no, I I agree with you. It's it's absolutely unprecedented. Um, what are the best ways for X-ray listeners to help people facing food insecurity? Yeah, so that is a great question. So one, I always start. I get that question quite a bit. I always start by saying, if you know anyone that needs help, number one, our resources are free, and if they just go to sunshinedivision.org, we have a button that goes to every page that says get help. So I always like to start with that to say, if you know someone that needs help, because I know not everyone is in a position to help right now. There's a lot of people that maybe need help for the first time. So I would start with that. Secondarily, I would say there are, unfortunately, dozens, if not hundreds of, of food pantries, uh, churches, schools, social organizations and clubs, in addition to our organization that are doing some form of food relief and whether that's cooking hot meals or sack lunches, or in our case, distributing emergency boxes. There, there is no shortage of organizations. And what I would, I would recommend to your listeners is, you know, find the organization in, in your zip code. You can, you can literally get it down to your zip code um, that, that you think aligns with your values and does the type of outreach that you care about. Um, you know, I'd recommend that you look and see if the organizations are, you know, well run and things like that. I'll, for, for an instance, most organizations should have their financials and whether or not they have any recognition as to, you know, like, for instance, uh, Sunshine Division is a charity navigator, four-star charity, meaning we're rather mm-hmm. frugal with our donations and we're proud of that. Yeah. So I would, I would say do your homework. The web is the web and any, any reputable organization is going to have that. But I would say also start really hyper-local. Look to your zip code. Yeah. Um, almost every neighborhood or, you know, every quadrant of the city, I would say for sure every quadrant of the city, has multiple groups doing work. And so whether you live in Northeast or Southeast or wherever you live, um, or Clackamas or, you know, Vancouver, there's, there's going to be people in your, um, in your, really in your zip code that are, are doing the work. You know, we're obviously doing Portland and Gresham as a whole. And, and, you know, we're not turning anyone away. If, you know, if someone lives on the border of, of, uh, Milwaukee and Portland, we're not going to check their ID and say, no, you can't access this food. We're not, we're really not doing that at all. But, um, you know, I, I would say do your homework. There's a lot. There's a lot of great people doing great work in a lot of different spaces, and um, there's certainly no shortage of, of help needed right now. 
No, absolutely. Um, Kyle, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you talking about this. It's really important to highlight uh, this as we go forward, especially as we get further into the pandemic. Um, That was Kyle Camberg, Executive Director of Nonprofit Sunshine Division. Thanks to Kyle for joining the local and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. X-Ray.